0: You don't have to dread the future because you have a whole new family in Jesus. Now, here's here's the thing. This family, this new family brings you new family ties. It brings you new family privileges, and it brings you new family conflict. New family ties, new family privileges, and new family conflict. This is Romans 8. This is the word of the Lord written to you where you are tonight. Paul says, So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, For if you live according to the flesh, you'll die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of sonship or adoption by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if we're children, then we're heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you that uh, in this passage we see that you have not chosen to relate to us just as servants or just as followers or just as creatures. But you have gone out of your way and decided to relate to us as your own children. And you as our Father. Lord, you have, you have written these things down because we struggle to believe this and we struggle to see how it changes life. And so would in your mercy you tonight uh, draw us near to our Father. Would we feel your presence? Would we know your love in a new way? And would you do this because you're gracious and because we are needy? We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You can take a seat. Whether you like your family or not, they are, I would bet, the most powerful influence in your life. They are more to blame or more to credit with who you are today than probably any other factor in your life. Literally, your family's responsible for what shape your nose is and what body type you have and what skin tone you have. But they're also responsible for more subtle things like, what do you find funny versus what do you take seriously? How seriously do you value education? It's kind of a family value that you picked up along the way. What foods do you like to eat or not eat? What kind of people do you gravitate towards? Do you want to have kids one day? Do you want to get married? So family, probably more than any other factor, influences who you are. Therefore, if your family is good, that's a really good thing. It really it sets you up really well for life, right? But family is so powerful that if your family was bad or if your family is non-existent in a sense, you feel crippled almost everywhere in your life because of stuff going on back home or stuff that happened to you uh, when you were growing up because family is powerful. Uh, a lot of y'all have been getting engaged and married lately, which means I've been doing a lot of premarital counseling. And this is the place where if you, if you don't already realize how much your family affects you, wait till you get there. Uh, because then you're sitting across the table from another person who's been completely shaped in another family culture, different values, they do things differently, and you've done them your way. And now you're about to go live together for the rest of your lives. And it's a scary thought when people find themselves across the table from each other like that uh, because they realize how much their families have affected them both for good and for bad. In a premarital council, we call that your family of origin or basically how you grew up and how it affects you now. And so if family is this important and this powerful, let's rewind all the way back to kind of our common family. We can say kind of the family of humanity and where we all came from. Uh, and if you took it all the way back to the beginning, the Bible would say we all came from kind of the Adam family, the Adam family. We talked about this last fall, but the Adam family is a dysfunctional family. It is so dysfunctional, uh, so falling apart at the seams, so kind of riddled with domestic disputes, riddled with backstabbing, deceit, lying, throwing each other, each other under the bus. Family kind of factions and and tribes developing within this family. Uh, Throwing darts at each other all the time. That's the Adam family. A family full of addictions. It's a family uh, full of people trying to go to rehab and get themselves better, but they can't. So they always end up back exactly where they were. And so this family, this humanity that we were all born into, is actually a stuck family too. Can't Can't get its act together no matter what it tries. Always circles back to the same old place. Um, And that is what the family of humanity is like. And Paul says, uh, he adds another kind of quality to it. He says, this is a family that's up to its eyeballs in debt. He says, not so much financial debt, but debtors to the flesh. This is a family that's in debt to the flesh. Now, what he means by that is this it's a term that he uses a lot, but it's basically fancy talk for saying they owe sin. Think about it this way, like a drug dealer in a a, a lower level dealer that's kind of not paying him his money. The drug dealer shows up, and that lower dealer is in debt to the other dealer. And when he shows up and he says, hey, it's time to pay up. It's time to give me what you owe me. You don't get the option of saying no, because you're in debt to him, right? You have to pay. You're his servant in that sense. There's no breaking free from that relationship just because you don't want to. Uh, You have to owe him. The same way that when sin comes at the doorstep and says, hey, it's time to give in again. It's time to serve me again. It's time to pay up. Uh, People in Adam's family uh, have to pay. There's no freedom there. Uh, They have to give uh, what sin demands. And so that's what he means when he says uh, this family, this family of origin of all of us uh, is a family that was in debt. And so here's the important thing. This is the family that you and I were born into, and you go to the maternity ward at the hospital, all the little babies coming out. That's the family they're born into. Uh, That's the family that we're naturally uh, born into, and we can't escape the dysfunction uh, on our own. You can try to move away. You can try to change your last name. You can try to clean yourself up, but at the end of the day, you still bear the family resemblance. You can't escape the family because you want to. The only way to get out of that family of origin that influences you and affects you for, for worse is through adoption. Why is adoption the only way you can get out of your family of origin? This Adam, Adam and Eve family, this, this broken, fallen family. Why is adoption the only way you can get out? <laughs> Because adoption, if some of y'all are very familiar with this, some of you not so much, but adoption is a legal action. If you want to adopt a kid, you can't just go pick up a kid and say, I want to love you and take him home. You'll be in jail the rest of your life if you do that. (laughs) If you want to adopt a kid, you got to go to the courthouse and it's a years long process. And you stand before a judge in a suit and you plead your case and you prove you have the resources to sustain this child. And you promise the court that nothing can come up. Nothing will happen that will ever make you unadopt this kid or stop supporting this kid. You have to prove that. It's a legal decision. And if you succeed in your argument, the judge looks at you and he says, this child, I'm severing all ties with their family of origin. Legally, they are completely cut from that family. And they are transferred into your family. They are as real And as much your son or your daughter as your biological children. They are as much heirs to all of your possessions. They are just as responsible for your family as everybody else. They are one of you now. Completely cut free from this and completely implanted in this new family. And so adoption is the only way that you can become a son or a daughter, a child of God. This is the first point we were going to talk about. That this new family of Jesus brings new family ties to you. Now, this is pretty different than a lot of people would say. Um, Perhaps at a time you've said this. I think I've said this plenty of times. But have you heard people say before, oh, don't worry about it. God's the father of us all, right? Or we're all children of God. And there's a sense in which if God is the creator and we're all creatures, we're all kind of related to him, but we all bear his image. But the Bible never uses that language. The Bible doesn't let anybody get away with saying that, that everybody can say they're God's child. That's just not true. Not everybody is a son or a daughter of God. Not everybody is a child of God. You become one by way of adoption. You don't become a child of God by being born from your mother. You become one because God, in his mercy, plucks you out of that family of origin, <coughs> severs all ties, And brings you into his family forever. That's the only way you can ever say that I belong in God's family. I'm a child. And that's the only time the Bible, it only, it reserves that language of son, daughter, child, father. It reserves that only for God's people. It's not a generic term like everybody uh, is in the family of God. Uh, And here's why this is important because if we say that everybody's a child of God or a son or daughter of God, what it does is it actually dilutes what that even means. It doesn't really mean anything anymore. And Paul kind of thinks it means the world to you. And it actually could change how you go home tonight. You could walk back up i really differently than you walked here because of what's in the passage. Uh, and, and Paul is doing this. He's saying in verse 14 and 15, he's kind of narrowing down. If we thought, well, everybody's a child of God child of God, Paul kind of begins to narrow this down and say those who are children of God are those who are led by the Spirit. He says it right in the beginning of this passage, and we talked about it last week, that those who are children who are in the family of God are those who are led by the Spirit. Uh, This basically means, if you remember last week, you know a little bit about what that means, but it also, it basically means those who, kind of God has reoriented your entire life. Around himself or he's reorienting your entire life around him, um, your posture towards Jesus has changed your posture towards sin has changed. Uh, it used to be this glimmering thing that you love, and now it's the thing that you hate, but you still do, and in your deluded moments, you still like, but when you come to, you hate Jesus used to be boring as crap to you, and now he is absolutely astoundingly beautiful to you. That's what it means to be led by the Spirit. His obsessions become your obsessions. His posture and and relationship towards sin becomes your relationship uh, towards sin. And so it means a person who is under no condemnation. Romans 8.1, we said that last week. There's no condemnation. But God doesn't stop In the gospel, he doesn't stop the good news with saying you're not condemned. He doesn't stop when he says that you're righteous, that you're clean, that you're innocent now if you're in Jesus. He doesn't stop there either. He keeps pushing. And he says that in addition to justifying you, making you righteous in Jesus, in addition to sanctifying you, setting you apart for his own purposes, he also adopts you. He makes you his own. Now, here's what he doesn't say. He doesn't say, I've made you a servant. He doesn't say, I've made you a disciple. He doesn't say, I've made you a follower or a friend. He says, I've made you a son. Now, ladies, Paul knew he was writing to ladies as well. And Paul knew you'd be in the room tonight. He's not forgetting half of the crowd. Uh, The reason he's calling us sons of God It's actually exalting women far above where they were in the first century when Paul was writing this. Daughters didn't get anything in the inheritance. didn't matter if you were the oldest daughter or the youngest daughter. You were left behind when it came time to pass down the family possessions. Only eldest sons got everything. Only eldest sons had the highest of the highest regard in the family. And so when Paul says to you, ladies and gentlemen, that you are sons of God, He is exalting you. He's saying you are at the top position in the family, the top position of honor, a full heir with all of the rights, all of the responsibilities, no matter your gender, no matter any of that, uh, you are adopted. Now, these aren't kind of formal family ties. We said you, you gain new ties when you come into this family. They're not like clunky, formal laboratory relationships like here's a list of how you need to relate to dad now and here's a list of what you're supposed to say to your brothers and your sisters this is not a family God's family is not a family of kind of limp handshakes or cold stiff little pecks on the cheek This is a family where when you think about the kind of love behind adoption the kind of love behind adoption isn't the limp handshake it's the kind of it's the prodigal son kind of embrace it's the drop everything run down the road bear hug feel the strength of the arms behind him, lift you off your feet, spin you around, weeping or laughing with joy. That's the kind of love in the family of God. That's the kind of love that's being described here in adoption. And here's how I know Paul is making this point. Paul wants you to kind of enter all the way into that until you believe it. Here's how I know he's doing that. He says right after that, you didn't receive a spirit of slavery that leads you back into fear. What's he mean by that? He means God doesn't want you, Christian, falling back into a relationship where it's like walking on eggshells around God. Always insecure. You never know what he thinks about you or what he feels about you. You wonder right now, what's God think about me? What's he he feeling towards me right now given what I've done today? given what the past month's been like. Paul is saying you didn't receive a spirit of slavery to drag you back into that kind of free fear and insecurity. You received a spirit. Literally what the word says is adoption. Now here's a quick problem, just for the thinkers in the room who are one step ahead of me. you. You could be saying, that's a beautiful picture of, of the dad running down the road and swooping up the child and grabbing them kind of delighting in the child. Uh, But, Ben, just like last week when you said, why, if you tell a kid there's not a monster under his bed, why is he still scared? Well, because he thinks a monster's gonna creep in once you leave the room. And you say, well, Ben, yeah, God may love me like this tonight, but what about another month of me making no progress in my temper? Or what about another month of me having kind of the secret thoughts I have about my roommate, how much they drive me crazy and how much I don't love them. What if God sees that? Uh, You need something more solid than just God loves you. You need something more solid than just the image of a bear hug. And so God is happy to accommodate. And what he says is he goes back to the legality of it all. He says, you want to see the proof? Go down to the courthouse. God could have chosen any metaphor to describe who you are to him. And he chose one of the only ones that is bound up in bureaucratic red tape. There's a paper trail. There's proof. It's legal. There's binding promises that he's made. Never will I forsake you. Never will I leave you. And so even when you do get to the places where you feel like he's got to be sick of me by now. He's got to be tired of me. Uh, You go back to, no, he says he's adopted you. He says you are a son He says you're a daughter. Your parents don't turn their back on you when you screw up. Or a good parent doesn't. And God certainly doesn't. Really quickly before we push on, why does this matter? Maybe this is informative to you or educational to you. Maybe you didn't know this. But why does it matter? Uh, John Calvin says why it matters. Um, He says this. He says, you will never make any progress in the Christian life. You will never fight sin until you believe that God is your father and that he is for you. You will never grow in the Christian life. You will never make any progress in fighting against sin until you believe that God is your father and that he is for you forever. Uh, here's uh, a little picture of this um, I was home today sick with Eli Eli's my four month old for those of you who don't know uh, he's at a phase of life where he's getting into all kinds of new stuff um, he can see people from across the room now and he lights up he started to laugh he flips himself over when you put him on the floor uh, we were practicing this morning how to get the pacifier in the mouth because when it's not in the mouth he cries so it's in me and Anna's best interest to interest to teach him to put that in his mouth Uh, So at 3 a.m. he can do it. Probably 10% of the time, he had enough coordination to kind of intently look at this little teddy bear that he has with a pacifier on it. Picks it up. Pulls it to his mouth. 90% of the time, he started sucking on, like, the cloth leg or something and, like, had a weird face. About 10% of the time, he actually got the pacifier. And I'm sitting there when he does that. I'm like, yes! Way to go, Eli! And he lights up. Um, He lights up. Now, what did I not do the nine times he didn't get it in his mouth? I patiently washed him. I didn't slap him. I didn't spank him. I patiently picked that thing up, and I took his hands, and I put it back on it. Here's why, though. Uh, Eli's like his dad. And the nine times he didn't get that thing in his mouth, he started whimpering. And if I didn't put his hands back on he would start crying, and he would give up, and he wouldn't even try anymore, and he'd just melt down. When it comes to fighting sin, resisting temptation, running from evil, pursuing godliness, do you, don't you and I do the same thing that Eli does with his pacifier? <coughs> As we try and fail, and fail and fail and fail and fail and fail and fail and succeed and fail and fail and fail. What difference would it make if you saw your father sitting there with you in that moment? Whatever that struggle is for you that you thought he was across the room screaming at you. What if he was there? What if he was hands-on? What if he was helping? What if he was far more realistic about how long it's going to take and what it's going to take for you to grow out of that and repent your way out of that? Would that not encourage your repentance even more? Would it not make you kind of want to enter into that? Eli will eventually wake up to the fact that I'm patient with him, and I'm not going to punish him if he doesn't get it. And that space, that patience is what will give him room to grow and to change. But if he thought that space or that patience wasn't there, he would be suffocated, no room. And I think a lot of you are suffocated. There's no space because you don't see your father as patient, as for you, as with you, as hands on in your mess. And I think it would really change a lot if you saw him that way. He wants you to see him this way. The second point is quick. We don't just get new family ties. We also gain new family privileges. Why? Because families get to ask questions nobody else gets to ask. Family gets to go places in your life nobody else gets to go They get to eat things out of the pantry. Nobody else gets to eat. They get to barge into dad's room at 3 a.m. and nobody else gets to do that. Uh, Family is is, is special in that sense. And because uh, God adopts you and puts you into a new family, along with that new family comes new privileges. So as I tick through a few of these quickly, I want you to be thinking, do you make use of these privileges? Do you act like a son or a daughter of God? Or do you act kind of like a traveling salesman who shows up at God's house and you kind of stay in the entryway afraid to go in because it doesn't feel like your house and you're walking on eggshells and it's not really home Uh, ask yourself do you make use of these privileges uh, if you are God's son his daughter if he's your father the first is this you gain a solid assurance that you indeed belong to God that's one of the chief privileges of being a son or a daughter and having the spirit of Jesus in you he persuades you that you belong to him. How cool is that? How amazing it is it that God actually cares whether you believe he's for you and wants you and is pursuing you. That he's actually given you his spirit to begin now to preach to your heart, to argue with your suspicions, to push back against your doubts that you really do belong. He says the spirit testifies with Our spirit, which presumes that our spirit's testifying, right? And when you hear spirit, uh, when it pertains to us, think like, I guess, consciousness or inner awareness or whatever, inner life. What he means is this. At some level, for a Christian, there's something inside of you, some inner awareness. Most of the time, I'd say, not all the time, most of the time that, that you are alive. There's an awareness that you love the things of God, that you want more of him. If you could snap your fingers and be done with sin, you would. You would want that. Um, there's. I think that's what that's what he's getting at when he talks about our spirit testifying. It with our spirit testifying. It's it's aware of these things in us. It's aware of these vital signs. And it's and it's persuading us that I'm alive. I know God. He's my Father. But why then would we need the Spirit to come alongside of us and testify with your Spirit? If your spirit's already doing it. If your consciousness, your, your awareness, your, your, your thinking is already doing that. Well, here's why. What happens when you're outnumbered? What happens when it's just you and your doubts? What happens when it's just you and the accusations of the devil? What happens when it's just you and your track record of shame, guilt, failure, stuckness? And it's just you with whatever you can conjure up and remember in the moment which is, for me, not very much in those moments, very fogged in, very blinded. It's just me versus a very powerful prosecutor who's very good at arguing his case, that I'm a bunch of slime, that I'm worthless, that I'm nothing. Uh, who's going to argue on my defense in that moment when I am incapacitated? This is what Paul's getting at. God has sent you a defender. God has sent you a preacher. He's the spirit of Jesus himself. And he dwells in you 24-7 from now to eternity. And he is the one who has your back in those lonely moments. And I do think they're somewhat rare when you have this kind of existential experience of the spirit testifying, crying out, Abba, Father. This term cry out is it's, it's kind of more of a violent wail. It's not like a little whimper. It's like when a kid skins his knee and runs to mom or dad. Or to use uh, this Aramaic word means daddy. So it's when a kid runs to mommy or daddy and just latches on. And all, they, when a kid is running to his parents like that, he's not like going through a litany of prayer requests. Dad, can you do this? Dad, can you do that? All he's saying is dad, mommy. And the spirit comes to you in those moments to testify daddy father that's what prayer sounds like in that moment that's what faith that causes heaven to celebrate sounds like in those weak places and God has your back in those moments I think I can count on one hand the times in the past 10 years of being a Christian where I've experienced something like that so powerfully I think there's a subtle sense in which the spirit is always kind of In a quieter way, testifying uh, that we are sons and daughters, but the times where you lose sight of it, you are so swamped in self doubt, you're so swamped in self hatred, you're so fogged in by your own emotions, you can't see anything. It doesn't feel like God is near, it doesn't feel like you're saved, and you're questioning everything. It is in those precise moments that I can count that this happened. In my prayers, I'm not saying I spoke in tongues. Don't hear me saying that. I'm saying it was a simple, weak moment where I was reduced to a simple father, father. What is that prayer saying? It's saying I belong to you. It's saying you are here. You are mine. And then it's not saying a bazillion other things because nothing else matters if that's true. And in those moments, it was when it seemed everything else in my life was falling apart. So I didn't even have the mental bandwidth to be praying about all the other stuff. It was just Abba, Father. God was there for me, having my back, defending me, testifying for me, persuading me. Preaching to me in that moment. How great is his love for his people. How tender and careful and attentive a father is he. That he would take care of his children this way. We also gain that access as a privilege of the family. That you can run to Abba. That you can run and call him daddy or dad as it were. And we also as the last saying gain an inheritance. Everything that is Jesus's becomes yours if you are alive in jesus his victory over sin becomes your victory his power over sin becomes your power that's the only way you have any business pushing back against sin it's because you're connected to him and he's already beaten it his joy becomes your joy his life becomes your life his reward from the father becomes your reward everything he gets you get paul doesn't say sub heir he says co heir full inheritance You are going to receive everything that Jesus Christ is going to receive. Wrap your head around that. This is how God treats his children. You are a full family member with 100% rights, privileges, responsibilities. I should mention the last thing before we stop. I won't go into it as deeply as I would have uh, otherwise. But the last thing is this. You get new family ties. You get new family privileges. But you also inherit the family fight, which means a new family conflict. Every family has conflict. Every other family's conflict is bad and dysfunctional. This family's conflict is healthy and life-giving. Because God's conflict is with evil, death, sadness, sickness, selfishness, deceit. God's fight is against everything that has destroyed you and me in this world. And when you become His Son, His daughter, you join the fight. If His Spirit is in you, you begin to hate what He hates and love what He loves. His mission becomes your mission. What does this matter for us? At least this—that we are people. If we are sons and daughters of God, if you are alive and you have been adopted, then it means that we are brothers and sisters. And it means that just as the Spirit has our back, we are people as as Ruf as a community, as Christians, as friends with people on campus. We have each other's backs. We don't fight each other. We fight sin. We fight our sin we fight temptation that's where we aim our guns not at each other but at that we have each other's backs this is why we think small groups are important i don't know how you can be a christian by yourself uh, let me just say this i'm not thinking it is impossible you can't do it you have a major disagreement with god himself if you think you can be a christian by yourself cuz he promises you you can't and we believe that and you need people to encourage you and remind you you're a son, you're a daughter, you have all the rights and privileges. And if you can't see it, let me say it for you. Uh, let me encourage you. This is a good place uh, for us to wrap up. Uh, if you want to talk about this more, come find me afterwards or go to Village Inn. I'd love to, talk to you, uh, love to talk more about this with you. And, and we'll pick up on a little bit about it uh, next week as well. But let's pray that Jesus would open our eyes. To this passage, what it means for us, and that he would make it uh, true for us. Lord Jesus, I pray for uh, for all of us who uh, may not know you or may not know whether we are indeed your sons or not. I pray that those would know for sure that you are here tonight welcoming them in Jesus into your family. But I pray that they would know that they must come through Jesus who says he is the door. He is the doorway into your family. But I pray that they would know the welcome mat is out. And they are warmly invited to be embraced for the first time by you as their father. And I pray for all of us who are in the house. Who are your children. But who act like visitors and orphans. And Holy Spirit we pray that you would persuade us. And even tonight testify to our spirits. About our sonship. About our childhood. And about God as our father. We ask all of this in his name.